Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 326 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. So are you as excited as me about Valentine's Day? A day to avoid the smug on social media. Well, you know that at the risk of sounding like Whitney, I will always love you. Did I really say that? Anyway, today we head back to the northeast of England for the second part of last week's story, Fear and Loathing on Teesside. And thank you to all 477 people who pointed out that Teesside has two S's. But first, I'm delighted that today's show comes to you from Clive's Candles, an award-winning luxury home fragrance brand nestled away in the heart of the National Forest. I can personally recommend this company after they kindly sent me some of their fantastic products. With Clive's Candles, you can explore a collection of handmade artisan fragrances ranging from classic clean cotton to rich black coffee and a whole host of others in between. Whether you prefer something light and floral, sweet and fruity, fresh and zesty, or hot and exotic, with over 30 handcrafted fragrances to choose from, you are sure to find your perfect scent at Clive's Candles. Alongside their luxury candles, Clive also expertly blends wax melts, reed diffusers, linen sprays, and more, which you can watch being made by hand in their shop and studio. Are you tired of buying candles with a fragrance that doesn't last? Well, Clive's candles are well known for the strength and longevity of their fragrances, with their popular candles in a tin being amongst the strongest you can buy, and their wax melts being stronger still. Now, with an exclusive 10% discount for listeners to this podcast, there has never been a better time to try Clive's Candles for yourself. Simply head to clivescandles.co.uk and enter crime at the checkout. That's clivescandles.co.uk and crime at the checkout. So what are you waiting for? Treat your home to the only fragrance it deserves with Clive's Candles. We think it would be criminal not to. I'm sorry, but there's no need for our guest the month and year game today, so we'll get back to that next week. Let's get on with the story. Okay, so if you recall in the last episode, we went back to August 2001 and saw a gang on the rampage in Middlesbrough looking for a person who they believe had ripped them off in the seedy Middlesbrough world of drugs and sex workers. High on crack cocaine, they injured a number of people and murdered married father of six 41-year-old market trader Calvin Singh when they pushed him through a glass window. Thomas Petch and Graham Coleman faced trial and were convicted of murder and sent to prison. The judge described the case as one of the most sordid and degrading over which he had presided. He said it was clear that the night of violence which left Calvin dead and four other men badly hurt had been sparked by some kind of turf war 
including drugs and prostitution. A third man at the trial, Jason Crossling, was found not guilty of any crime and walked out of court a free man. But detectives had been unable to track down two other members of the gang. Jason's brother, Jonathan Crossling, and Lee Harrison, a local DJ in Middlesbrough known in DJing circles as Hooligan X, which was a name from his days fighting at football matches as he followed Middlesbrough home and away. But the officers involved in this case vowed to do everything they could to find these two men and bring them to justice for their actions. But before we get to the search for Harrison and Jonathan Crossling, let's just pause and examine it a little more about Jason and Jonathan Crossling and another incident they were alleged to be involved in four years before the murder of Calvin Singh, back on the 13th of July 1997. This incident took place at the amazingly wonderfully named Jovial Monk pub in North Ormsby, which is in Middlesbrough, just a stone throw from Middlesbrough Football Club. On this evening, a gunman opened fire with a 9mm pistol from a moving BMW. This was clearly no accident, and five of the bullets hit their seemingly intended target, a man called Kevin Hawken, who was drinking outside the pub on this fine summer's day. It was reported that at this time Kevin Hawken was involved in criminal activity. The police charged two suspects with attempted murder, and those two men who faced trial for the shooting were the two brothers, Jason and Jonathan Crossling. But the case was, well to me anyway, it was a strange one. And as far as I can tell, both brothers were acquitted on the direction of the judge. And the Crown then abandoned their case against them for reasons which were never revealed. Hmm, I wonder what that was for. If you do know, please do drop me a note and I'll update everyone else next week. But that isn't the end of Kevin Hawkins' association with the Crossling brothers. Kevin didn't run into either of them again until the 12th of August 2007 when he bumped into Jason Crossling at the Fountain Pub in Ormsby High Street. Of course, Jason Crossling was a free man after being found not guilty of the attacks we covered last week. When they first met in the boozer, the two men were friendly towards each other, even bear-hugging like long-lost mates. But a short time after this, Kevin attacked Jason Crossling from behind. Jason told how he felt a sharp pain in the back of his arm and he tried to stop Kevin attacking him by grappling with him on the floor before he escaped by jumping over a wall. Then on seeing his blood-soaked t-shirt, he realised he hadn't just been pushed by Kevin Hawken, but he'd been stabbed. Hawken faced court for this attack, where an eyewitness said they saw an agitated, anxious-looking Hawken go into the pub kitchen area. Then he came back into the garden and struck Jason Crossling twice. Hawken was seen shouting at his bleeding victim, who suffered non-life-threatening cuts to his right arm and left shoulder. Crossling apparently didn't want to get the police involved or to go to hospital, but he was persuaded to do both. Now, at his trial, 45-year-old Hawken denied wounding with intent to do grievous bodily harm, but he did admit the lesser charge of unlawful wounding. He told how he'd been out of trouble for nearly 21 years, and his QC explained how anxious and fearful he'd felt when Crossling randomly appeared in his local pub. 
The QC alleged that Crossling had been a violent man, heavily involved in organised crime and unafraid to use lethal weapons. He told how Hawken had changed his life since the 90s, he'd been married for 10 years with a young daughter and a full-time job and he would not trouble the courts again with acts of violence. The judge took pity and said, those who use knives in public almost always go to prison, but in the very peculiar circumstances of this case, he suspended the 12-month jail term for two years with six months supervision. He told Hawken, I'm quite satisfied that you certainly believe that you were in danger. Should there be any further meeting, the best advice I can give you is to turn on your heel and depart. Now what do you make of that? A man who stabbed somebody twice, should they not have gone to prison? I wonder what you think. Or do you agree that in that peculiar situation, as the judge called it, maybe it was the right sentence? I'm still not so sure. But enough of Jason Crossling. Let's return to our story and the search for Jonathan Crossling and Lee Harrison. If you recall, Chief Superintendent Braithwaite was the lead detective looking for the men who murdered Calvin Singh. He'd vowed never to stop looking for the two missing men and in December 2001, he finally got the breakthrough he was waiting for. I became aware that he... Jonathan Crossling, was in the Malaga area of Spain. With the help of colleagues in ENSYS and Interpol, we set up an operation and local officers from Cleveland, working alongside a Spanish team, located and arrested him at a mobile home in Bella Medina. Now, the way he was tracked was not unusual. He loved and missed his girlfriend and daughter when he was on the run and they had been tracked by police when they went to Spain to visit him, and they led police almost literally to his front door. 37-year-old Crossling did all he could to fight the lengthy extradition process, and it was 12 months later when detectives finally got the go-ahead for him to return to the UK and face a murder charge. Their very real concern was that some of his gangster associates would try and free him from custody, So it was in complete secrecy that three local officers flew out to Madrid from Middlesbrough where they formally arrested him before bringing him back through Manchester Airport. He continued to protest his innocence until the very day his trial began, how often do we hear this, when he chose to admit the lesser charge of manslaughter, four counts of GBH of intent and a further count of aggravated burglary. For these offences, the man known as Bam Bam was sent to prison for 18 years. Members of Calvin's family were in court to see Crossland, the man whose actual push had resulted in his death, and they were pleased with the outcome of his brother Tony saying, we are just pleased that the person responsible has been brought to justice. It was a tragic situation, and Calvin was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He didn't deserve to die in that way. He was just an innocent party. He was on a bit of a downer at the time it happened and it was totally out of character for him to be where he was. Chief Superintendent Braithwaite commented briefly too. Jonathan Crossling is a dangerous and violent man and the streets of Teesside will be a lot safer following his imprisonment. The wheels of justice may turn slowly 
It has taken more than 17 months since his arrest in Spain to get him to the dock of Newcastle Crown Court, where he finally admitted his part in the killing of Mr Singh and to attacking four others. His jail sentence should send a clear message to those who seek to act in a similar fashion that there is no hiding place for those who commit horrific crimes of violence such as this. Despite Crossland's conviction and sentence, the inquiry is sadly not complete. Another suspect remains at large and inquiries will continue until this individual is similarly brought to justice. And so the hunt continued for the last remaining member of the gang, Lee Harrison or Hooligan X. After Calvin's death, Harrison went on the run to Scotland, South Africa, Amsterdam and finally to the Caribbean and Jamaica. His family used to take holidays on the island and he still knew people there and understandably he loved the lifestyle, who wouldn't? But people talk, whispers get back to local detectives and he was traced to Jamaica in November 2003 and local officers were dispatched in the April of 2004 to bring him back for trial. Like Crossling before him, he insisted on his innocence, but he too opted for a last-minute guilty plea to manslaughter after long discussions with his legal team at Newcastle Crown Court just before the trial began. He received a nine-year jail sentence after pleading guilty to manslaughter, grievous bodily harm and wounding. His dad, Tommy, was also sent to prison for several years for trying to silence witnesses. In fact, he got a year longer behind bars than his son. Tommy had told one witness to tell a pack of lies to police and he strongly suggested that she changed her story or she would be sorted out by local heavies. For another witness, he paid almost £1,000 of the hotel bills. And Harrison Sr. was described in court as devious and arrogant as he had tried so hard to persuade witnesses to not tell the truth so that his son Lee could get away with the murder charge. When sentencing him, the trial judge said it was an attempt to pervert the course of justice of the most serious type. He'd planned and controlled the campaign to interfere with the trial and the judge condemned his inherent deviousness and arrogant disdain for officers of the law and the grip he had on others. A 10-year sentence, it was seen as a deterrent as it was such a serious attempt to pressurise witnesses into changing their evidence. But Tommy Harrison appealed and it was reduced from 10 years to 6 years with the original sentence being seen as excessive. I wonder what you make of that sentence. 10 years for influencing a witness, is that fair enough? Or is it over the top? Now with Harrison also behind bars for Chief Superintendent Braithwaite, it meant he'd been able to keep his promise to Calvin's family to put the whole gang behind bars. He concluded, It's without doubt the most challenging, complex and interesting investigation I've led. Every officer involved did a first-class job. They stayed the course from day one and I would like to pay tribute to their skills. Most of all, however, I would like to think this case will act as a lesson to others minded to involve themselves in lifestyles like these. I would much rather have been able to put the considerable resources involved in this investigation into reducing crime generally 
and improving people's quality of life. Yeah, I fully agree, don't you? How much must this investigation have cost over all those years? Lee Harrison was released from prison in 2009. From there, he moved to Portsmouth and married Tamara, who he'd met while on the run in Jamaica. He planned to turn his back on crime, telling friends this was a new chapter in his life, and he got a job as an electrical cable fitter. But as we hear so often on this podcast, when people are released from prison, readjustment to so-called normal life can be very difficult. And by 2015, his marriage was effectively over, and he just said he needed a change of scene. So just before Christmas, he headed to Lebanon to spend some time with a friend of his, Adonis Al-Mazri, who lived in the Becca Valley region. Now, you may be surprised to hear that I'm no expert in Lebanon, but it is reported that this area, which borders the mountains and Syria, is a lawless area where crime flourishes, like Croydon on a larger scale. The BBC described it like this. It's a wild frontier, a place where the police often fear to tread. There are thousands of outstanding arrest warrants. The Lebanese call these people the Farin, the fugitives. If you know the right people in the Becca, you can get away with almost anything. So Lee had met Adonis in London and they got on well. But it had been reported that Adonis had been shot during a family feud when he was 18. And after this, he went on to shoot the attacker. He was also linked to terrorist organisations and it appeared he was no stranger to violence. Lebanon, as you may know, has a strong reputation for drug production. The UN ranks Lebanon as the world's third largest producer of hashish. And due to its strategically significant geographic location, it's a major transit hub for heroin and cocaine. And it seems as though Lee wasn't actually in Lebanon for a break over Christmas, as he'd said, but he was putting together some sort of drug deal. It appeared that Adonis's family owned a cannabis farm and the two of them were in it together. Lee Harrison was now almost 50 and he told a friend that he really needed to do something to make his mark in the world. He told him that this deal was going to be the big one, and in his own words, it was a do-or-die situation. But Lee's plans to oversee this drugs deal went badly wrong once he was in Lebanon. This wasn't Middlesbrough, where he was well-connected and knew how things worked. This was a totally alien environment. In January 2016, he told friends that he was abducted at gunpoint by people with American accents who he thought were the CIA. It was later claimed that they weren't. It might have been local paramilitaries. And when he went to extend his visa, his passport was taken by the Lebanese authorities who told him that he was wanted by Interpol. Once again, this was denied later by Interpol. But for Lee, he was now stranded in Lebanon. These events and the breakdown of his marriage and what happened in England seemed to affect his mental health. And a friend told how he went downhill massively, losing weight and looking very scruffy. And anyone who knew Lee, back as we described in the last episode, he'd always been a great dresser and took great pride in how he dressed. 
friends were concerned when he spoke to them because he would speak in a confused way about being held by ISIS and the Taliban. He didn't sound like the same Lee I know, said one. Lee told how his hosts had turned against him and they suspected that he was an undercover agent. They're all whispering and talking about taking me away and having something done, he said. His brother just told him to get out of there as soon as possible. But it was too late. On the 20th of April 2016, one of the hosts went out to buy some honey that Lee had supposedly asked for. When he returned, he found Lee's lifeless body hanging from the front door. The Lebanese authorities declared it a suicide, although Lee's family and friends believed firmly that he was murdered. On the 20th of May 2016, Lee was back in Middlesbrough for his funeral. The mourners were all told about Lee's devotion to his family, particularly his three children. And delivering the eulogy, a friend said that Lee had lived an action-packed 50 years. He told how he was a streetwise man and had a special bond with his dad, wheeling and dealing. That was the family trade. There was a UK inquest in December 2017 and the coroner declared an open verdict saying there is no evidence that Lee was unlawfully killed but I can't be certain he intended to take his own life. She also said that British police felt it was highly likely that Lee was involved in some organised criminality whilst in Lebanon. So why did the deal all go so badly, badly wrong? Let me quote a small section from the BBC. The inquest heard that a relative of Adonis al-Masri had told British police that Adonis had in fact stolen £150,000 from Lee, causing the drug deal to collapse. The inquest also heard that his half-brother believed that Lee was the surety, the living surety, and because it never happened, they made an example of him. His dad, Tom Harrison, is sure that his son was murdered. I know my son, and there's no way he would take his own life, said Tom. He had too much to live for. He loved his children. You couldn't have met a better lad. We were loyal to each other. I gave him everything he wanted and took him all over the world. I gave him whatever he wanted in order to keep him away from that type of criminality. So what do you make of what we've heard this week and also last week? No doubt there'll be many of you listening who will have no sympathy at all for Lee Harrison, who met his death in Lebanon when apparently trying to set up a drug deal. Live by the sword, die by the sword, right? But can you imagine his last weeks in that country, feeling trapped, his mental health deteriorating, no passport, and his seeming last shot of making something of himself as he saw it was ebbing away. Did he take his own life or was he murdered? The reality is that we will almost certainly never know. And I do feel for his family, especially his dad and his three children. It must be devastating for them. But we can't forget that he was part of the violent gang who caused such terror in Middlesbrough on that summer's evening and the next day back in 2001. And it directly resulted in the death of innocent father and husband Calvin Singh, and serious injuries to other men. 
In the end, it's credit to the police that all members of the gang were sent to prison for their crimes. They all faced justice. As I record this in February 2023, all will be out of prison now. I wonder if for the others, their days of offending are now over. I guess the final thought I'm left with is, as the chief superintendent said last week, just how much devastation was caused and how many lives ruined by 24 hours of unthinking, drug fueled violence. Calvin Singh was killed, his children left without their dad, and his family without their elder brother. Another man critically injured and still suffers the effects of the attack on him, and at least three other people assaulted. On top of that, a witness in a long term relocation programme. Two relatively young men are serving life for murder and two others are serving 14 years and nine years for their part in what happened. It was such a complete waste of so many people's lives, and I've asked myself many times, why? What on earth was it all for? And of course, we can now add the time spent in prison for intimidating witnesses by Tommy Harrison, and the early death at just 50 of his son Lee. So much pain caused by so many people, for so little. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. If you'd like to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please just head to the Facebook group. There's almost 90,000 of us there now. And a huge thank you to everyone that supports me on Patreon, especially the new members of this exclusive community who have joined us this week. That is Warren Nelson, Chelsea Sweatsloot and Sharon. If you'd like to come and join us on Patreon, just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. 50 bonus episodes, competitions and a ton of behind the scenes content. So that's me for another week. Thank you so much again for joining me. Today I want to end by saying something different. Despite all the others, I always say despite all the others, but always think of the UK Rugby League player Joe Westerman around the back of Greg's in Pontefract and stay classy. <laughs> what a week you must have had. Cheerio for now. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.